Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. And this is the Generation Jihad podcast, where we cover all things what used to be known as the War on Terror and what we call the Long War. Today, I have a special guest, my friend, colleague, and he's a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Benham Ben Talibu. Benham, welcome to the show. Bill, thank you so much for having me. Always good to be back with you. Always a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. Um, we got to, some interesting news that the developments from the Middle East over the last couple of weeks. Um, today, we're going to discuss a, a recent battle in what is known as the war between the wars. That's the shadow war between Israel, Israel and Iran that is taking place throughout the Middle East, particularly in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Palestinian territories, Yemen, and even inside of Israel and Iran. Before we start, we dis discussed that recent drone strike that struck an Iranian drone program inside of Iran. Benham, tell us about the war between the wars. What, what exactly is that and how does that impact Israel? Well, it's actually a, a lexicon and, and a concept introduced into English by, I think, national security officials and thinkers in Israel that kind of talk about this campaign against the Islamic Republic's uh, foreign and security policy uh, rather than you know, the thing that's oriented and animated a lot of Western officials, which is Iran's nuclear program. You know, war between the wars kind of assumes there was a war before, that there'll be a war after whether that war after is one between Israel and Iran overtly or kinetically or conventionally, uh, or if it's yet another iteration of the Lebanon war that has a different uh, angle to it with you know multiple countries fighting at once against Israel. Uh, all that is really yet to be seen. But the war between the wars, this period in, in between, uh, again, I would stress, is the you know Israeli pushback to those Iranian networks, whether those networks are what is resupplying uh, you know, actors like Lebanese Hezbollah or what is uh, basically qualitatively improving uh, Lebanese Hezbollah strike capabilities or whether they are building entire weapons factories or weapons depots on Syrian territory or whether they are parking newer, more lethal Iranian, Iranian long-range strike capabilities into Western Iraq uh, or elsewhere. You know, this, this kind of contiguous strip of territory, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, uh, is kind of central to this war between the wars, even though it can take on other domains and dimensions. For instance, a lot of people also call this a shadow war because there is a cyber element to the Israel-Iran strategic competition. And there's also a naval or a maritime element. You know, uh, Iran has responded uh, against Israeli uh, tankers when some of its own tankers uh, are subject to cyber attacks with something kinetically. If you remember, I think in the summer of 2021, Iran launched uh, I believe the exact same variant of suicide drone or loitering munition uh, that it has now provided Russia at a tanker that it believed was owned by uh, an Israeli company or an Israeli person uh, and actually ended up killing two people, including a British citizen and a Romanian captain of that vessel. So there are so many moving parts in theaters and elements and weapon systems, mostly covert, but, but uh, some overt of this. Uh, and as you mentioned, they spill over onto the territories uh, themselves. You know, one may see more Iranian attempts uh, at lone wolf radicalization within the Palestinian community in the years ahead as it tries to strike deeper and strike more soft targets of the Israelis. Conversely, uh, the attacks and the things that go boom in the night uh, with respect to Iran's nuclear program, missile program, drone program, or space program could be set uh, to uh, escalate in the future. So we may, see, we may see more of what we're about to talk uh, today, not less, as those threats evolve. And that in also includes uh, assassinations of Iranian, such as uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps officials and whatnot. We've seen that quite a bit inside of Syria, have we not, Ben? Uh, inside of Syria, and, uh, you, you mentioned assassinations, I believe. Uh, you know, you guys, again, LWJ, really, this is the bread and butter, the Iran al Qaeda connection, the uh, assassination, I think, in 2022 of a senior. Uh, AQ official who I think was Egyptian. In, in yeah, Abu Muhammad al-Masri, yes. Exactly. Yes. And uh, that was believed to be carried out, again, Foreign Intelligence Service, but many believe it was the Israeli Mossad who carried out that uh, operation. And then even within uh, Iran's nuclear program later that year, uh, 2020, again, 2020 it was, yes. Um, 
it was the killing of Mohsen Fakhrizad and Mahabadi. And, you know, uh, LWJ was gracious enough to provide a lot of uh, space for me to do a big bio of him and, and how the Iranian press has been reacting and continues to react uh, to the killing of really the linchpin uh, of uh, Iran's military nuclear program. So uh, it does touch their territory, you're right, and it even does trickle down to a sole person. Absolutely. Let's turn to the recent uh, drone strike, which uh, took place on an Iranian military base uh, near a facility in central Iran that is supportive of Iran's space program. Uh, That took place, what, I believe that was in the beginning of uh, February, right? Uh, What happened? What do we know about that strike? So there is now, fortunately, some satellite imagery that's showing an aftermath uh, of the strike. But essentially, what we now know is that it was a quadcopter drone. This kind of matters for several reasons. A quadcopter drone with bomblets that can function basically like an even poorer man's version of a suicide uh, drone, which already itself is a a poor man's version of a cruise missile, for instance. Uh, But it's basically a targeted strike uh, against a drone facility. And this is kind of consistent with quadcopter use, you know, whether it's relatively cheap, A, B, commercially available, and C, uh, believed to be operable from shorter ranges. So to control it, to set it off, you really do want to be within several kilometers of it. You know, we're not talking, you know, the ranges these things can fly. We're talking between the operator and the actual weapon itself. So it's an unmanned aerial system that basically uh, is cheap and that you have to be close enough to the target to to actually set off. Uh, you know, some people have even guessed you need to be within three to five uh, km here, three to five kilometers. But uh, it struck this this cheaper kind of weapon struck this drone facility. Uh, it is those drones were be- that facility was believed to be producing not just the loitering munition that Iran has given to Russia, but other variants of uh, drones as well. As we know, Iran has drones that do ISR. Uh, Iran has drones that uh, function like UCAVs, unmanned combat aerial vehicles. In fact, there was a story just uh, just last week, if I'm not mistaken, about Iran widening its drone support to Russia, not just providing the suicide drones, but these unmanned combat aerial vehicles uh, that can, you know, kind of function as lower and closer air support, uh, if you will, to kind of swarm a target at once, not just as like a cruise missile, but to drop the bomblets and kind of have a reusability to them rather than kind of set it and forget it and lose the whole munition uh, when you expend it. But moral of the story, this is also uh, interesting because it's not the first time a quadcopter drone with bomblets was used against an Iranian uh, institution. Uh, I believe in February 2022, there were quadcopter uh, attacks against an Iranian drone base, again, drone against drone, uh, in the western Iranian city of Kermanshah. And even before that, it is alleged that there were quadcopter drones used in the 2020 attack uh, at the nuclear uh, centrifuge uh, construction facility, if I'm not mistaken, at Karaj uh, in central uh, Iran. So at least three instances of the same exact weapon for a slightly different target over time. Uh, the second instance, the February 22, 2022 one, I want to 2022 one, I want to draw our listeners' attention to, because Iran did indeed respond to that, and now there is concern that Iran uh, will respond to the February 2023 quadcopter attack. And the angle, just to get our readers interested, of Iranian response was not a drone attack directly against Israel. And it was not indeed a drone attack at an external target. It was a public, overt, from its own territory, precision strike, short-range ballistic missile barrage at basically civilian sites, allegedly civilian sites, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, Iranian media alleges that these were sites or places that uh, the Israeli Mossad was present in, or it was a Mossad cell, some, some of them have said. But uh, there is damage, according to Kurdish uh, news outlets, uh, that show the missiles having struck the large home and compound of an oil tycoon, a Kurdish oil tycoon, uh, in northern Iraq. So there may be an element of Iran adjudicating the Israel-Iran fight using these weapons of war, uh, as well as bringing in elements of uh, Iraq's turbulent domestic politics there as well. So if past this prologue, Iran might indeed respond with these weapons and, and at a place where the cost for responding is lower, like Iraq versus Israel. Interesting that uh, I wasn't aware that these were actually you're talking when you're talking about these quadcopter drones, you're talking these off the shelf drones that you could go pick up at a big box store here in the United States. Am I right? 
My daughter yeah. owns one. It, it is a DJI drone. I've flown it myself. Uh, it's quite easy, but you're right. You need to be within several kilometers for for certain to conduct that. So that's telling us it's more, this wasn't a military hardware grade drone, but something more off the shelf converted. And then they have to have assets on the ground. You got to put, uh, you got to put an actual asset to fly that drone. That's quite dangerous. And, you know, you're, you're really, you hit the nail on the head with the commercial availability of this, you know, commercial availability plus a little bit of defense industrial base is what is making this UAS threat such a global challenge around the world. That's why uh, the Ukrainians and the Russians respectively have had a hard time. But also uh, when you're looking at force planning, you know, 5, 10, 15 years out uh, in places like the Middle East, when you expect more drone proliferation, not less. These are things that are going to be challenges to existing, you know, missile defense architecture that we have in the region. And the Iranians penetrated that architecture, as you remember, in September 2019, with the lower and slower flying cruise missiles and suicide drones that perform the same function. So this is the adversary learning, adapting, uh, using cheaper uh, capabilities. But the good news is that the good guys are also watching and making cheaper and more readily available uh, adaptations. So in, in this instance, uh, there is a lesson in the fact that an FED colleague of ours, Ryan, uh, just mentioned uh, this, that the Ukrainians could take a page from the Iranian playbook or the U.S. could take a page from the Iranian playbook and see what kind of commercially available applications to uh, drone, what, what kind of uh, military applications could be made to commercially available drones to kind of function as a quote-unquote good enough option uh, to strike back at the Russians in the way that the Russians are striking at them. Uh, and so in the Israel-Iran instance, it seems like the Israelis are looking for, you know, the right kind of uh, weapon to use in this larger escalatory chain that would not beget an overt, you know, larger Iranian response, uh, but that it would also do damage. And uh, these are these are tools that are out there and that are available and that we should keep our eye on in the defense space, because much like. Uh, precision strike systems in the 80s and 90s revolutionized warfare. This too seems to be revolutionizing warfare in the 2000s and 2020s. Yeah, the, fir my, the first, I don't mean to dwell too much on this, but uh, the first time I saw these being used was by the Islamic State inside of Iraq. Um, they were attacking Iraqi armor and as well as Iraqi personnel using again these uh, off the the ones i know are the dji drones right my like i said my daughter owns one i could fly one it, it really is stunning if you've never flown one of these how easy just how easy it is to fly it and with just a little bit of ingenuity what they were doing was attaching explosives and grenades they would drop them on top and you would watch you know the weak part of armor is often at the very top and destroying armor, destroying uh, bunkers, things of that nature. So uh, it is a little ironic that the Israelis are taking a page from the Islamic State, but, you know, technical innovations on the battlefield, just because uh, an evil enemy employs it doesn't mean you shouldn't copy it. So it is certainly something to, to keep an eye on. And even the, the Islamic Republic's playbook, you know, exact, I'm really glad you mentioned ISIS because that was something people struggled to grasp when they were looking at Yemen, particularly starting in 2017, 18, 19. Uh, not just the ballistic missiles that Iran had provided, but what Yemen could do with lo locally produced uh, drones that have, you know, hallmarks of, you know, some Iranian blueprints when it comes to design, but the material is in country. And the analogy I always gave is the perfect analogy that you just said, Bill, which is ISIS in Iraq. You know, how large was the multinational coalition that was fighting ISIS? It was huge. Yeah. But yet still, ISIS was able to scrap together and get this kind of stuff, A, commercial availability, and B, stuff locally that they could attach. So if ISIS is able to do it, you know, really, it, it opens the door uh, for, for other kinds of actors as well. That, that's one. And, and two, again, to stress the range, uh, there was a comment, I think, two years ago by a former Iranian minister of intelligence uh, who was talking about the penetration uh, of Iran. And this was at a time of, you know, uh, not just the things that went boom, but again, uh, step up in the assassination attacks uh, inside the country, the penetration uh, uh, of Israel, of Iran's security services, state, what have you. And he said that he said this line, I'm going to paraphrase it, that, you know, no official sits, should sleep soundly at night. Um, and so when you're talking about the range and whether it was a local asset or a foreign intelligence official on, on ground, 
there had to be someone close by, uh, which again, every time I see something that is actually more of a explosive attached to it than cyber enabled sabotage, I, in my head, I play back that line from the foreign minister of intelligence where he's warning officials about how punctured uh, the state is. You actually were reading my mind because if I'm an Iranian and the Israelis launch a, you know, sophisticated drone from its territory and is able to snake it inside of Iran, I go, well, you know, look, that's a difficult issue to, to deal with. But the fact that, as you said, they're penetrated, that Israel has agents inside of Iran that they could put them within striking distance, within a kilometer, within hundreds of yards, right? The, the assassination that killed Abu Muhammad al-Masri was believed to be, according to the New York Times, was a remotely um, fired sniper rifle. Um, but you know what? Again, you still have to be in range with that. That's that would really that would be something that really bothered me if I was in, in Iranian intelligence or counterintelligence and had to deal with that threat. Again, it's one thing, you know, advanced hardware is known to penetrate borders all the time. I mean, just look at the uh, even not so advanced uh, hardware. Look at our recent balloon mania. Yeah. Um, right. Um, Indeed, yeah. You shrug your shoulders and go, all right, how do we adjust to this? How do we deal with this? But it's very difficult uh, on security services when you have agents within the country, be they foreign or domestic. That's what keeps again, that's what keeps you up at night. Uh, so, well, th that's a great anecdote uh, by you, Benham, and I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. No. And I mean, caveat to the anecdote, not to water it down, but I, you know, as an Iranian American, I can't help but also mention this is that that is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, you know, this regime with its paranoia already routinely takes people who are innocent, as you saw now with the protests, which have been going on for five months and calling everybody a foreign agent, yet it's yes. even unable to even catch people who may allegedly actually be foreign agents. So that, that is the, you know, the, the, security insecurity paradigm of this regime and the capability versus paranoia paradigm of this regime projecting strength when in reality uh you know they're actually not even looking at the issue yeah. and you know the, the other side to that too or, or on your side of the coin uh, the iranian security services are certainly redoubling efforts to dig up these networks and they're probably going to cast innocent people in those nets uh, for for certain but when you conduct an attack like this there's a lot of an uh, analysis that goes on on the one who received it and they're going to do their best to try to figure out how did this happen where was the drone launched did people hear it because look they're not that quiet i'll tell you that if it's uh, anything like what i've flown um someone knew someone heard it go up i do have i'll leave that there i do have one additional question on that attack venom do we know how effective was this attack did it to did it uh was it significant damage to the factory moderate damage or was this uh sort of a you know just a really more of an, an attack to just open their eyes i wouldn't i wouldn't put it in the category of psychological attack based on two things one is you know open source reporting and two you know some of the satellite imagery that later on open source reporting has uh cited obviously the iranians talked about shooting down one of the drones and like having thwarted the attack overall or thwarted the overall intent of the attack, but but did admit to the fact that there was an attack. There, there, there is that element to it. So you know, the Iranians tend not to admit, but when they admit, you know, maybe something actually really, really did do damage, and they're trying to find a way to get out ahead of it, which is you know um, them playing more of the PR card than the the foreign and security policy card. But uh, when I look at these things, I, I tend to again, this is this is maybe more me, but I tend to take a little bit more of a uh, a video approach than a snapshot uh, or a screenshot of your phone approach, which is, yeah, you know, the facility did look damaged. And yeah, I don't have as an open source outsider an accurate count as to how many drones were being produced versus what was sitting on the shelf. My gut is it, it did some damage. It may have impeded uh, something that Iran may have likely wanted to end up sending to Russia anyway. Uh, ironically, we have more information about drone production costs and drone production rate in Iran, in the open source that we do for missile production cost and missile production rate, which is a whole other behemoth. But ultimately, you know, as long as there is a will and a capability for the Israelis or whoever is doing this to carry it out, I would say 
the kind of the persistence of this goes back into the war between the wars, but also goes into the philosophy of death by a thousand cuts. So even if you take the most conservative estimate based on the most skeptical open source information, pre-imagery, the fact that it is likely to continue over time, that there seems to be political appetite for this stuff, and there has been a trend in the past, uh, means that it could be effective in getting the adversary to, you know, they want, the adversary is going to keep fighting. The Islamic Republic is going to continue doing what it does so long as it's in power, but it's about handcuffing or handicapping one of its two hands. And I think that is the approach for a while now uh, that Israeli policymakers have taken to the Iran challenge, but that the U.S. simply has not taken. You know, we have, we seem to have a monadic approach to it. Yes or no, deal or no deal, bomb or no bomb. Uh, Whereas the Israelis, by virtue of, again, geography, you know, we talked about drone controllers having to be close enough. You know, countries are also close enough. By virtue of being in region, they have a fundamentally different latitude, uh, it seems like. And that explains the reason and the rationale for things like the war between the wars. A quick programming note, I'm Bill Rajo, Senior Fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. And you're listening to Generation Jihad. Today, we're joined by Benham Ben Talibu. He's my friend, colleague, and the Senior Fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Benham, I'm really glad you mentioned the, the missile issue. Um, you recently put out a large report on Iran's ballistic missile program. What is one of the lessons of the report regarding Iran's evolving methods of ballistic, ballistic missile use. Well, thank you, Bill. Um, you know, this, this kind of was a labor of love. It, it, it took quite a while. I, I'm glad it correlated with the pandemic, so it provided a little bit of breathing room from, uh, uh, from the news to, to get uh, at least a few drafts of this in. And you know, the problem with, with, with this is that it's quite literally a moving target. And while during the pandemic time and post-pandemic time, the world's kind of seemed to be, and again, rightly, infatuated with Iranian drones, Iranian drones in the region, and then much more recently, Iranian drones to Ukraine, uh, to Russia for use against Ukraine. Uh, The missile issue did not stop being an issue, and Iran made qualitative leaps in its missile program uh, in the past few years. And, you know, just to back end this for folks, uh, for more than a decade, both on the left and the right, American directors of national intelligence serving under whoever president, Republican or Democrat, have attested, and this is like a baseline attesting, that Iran has the largest ballistic missile arsenal in the Middle East. What's been happening for more than a decade, where it has quantity, it has now grown in the world of quality. It has, at a minimum, up to 2,000 kilometers on its medium-range ballistic missiles, and the stuff in the 1,000-kilometer category, where there's solid propellant, so uh, you can move them, you can maneuver them, uh, you can store, fuel them and store them in advance, uh, and the regime, as you know, for many years has been, you know, creating what they call jungles of missiles underground and underground bases and underground depots and underground kind of multiple clip uh, launchers underground, uh, is that uh, they're more willing to use them. And these greater precision in some of these shorter range systems, particularly the solid propellant ones, uh, are kind of lowering the bar for Iranian missile use. So while we continue to see them get creative about things like the use of drones or continue to use things that have made them a threat for so long, which is humans, terrorist organizations, uh, and continue to, you know, wreak havoc and be active in that part and, you know, partner up with criminal organizations halfway around the world to do kidnappings and terror and assassination. They are evolving here on the missile space at home and becoming potentially uh, different, a different kind of actor where missiles are moving far away from being just a weapon of terror and they're moving very much so into the world of being uh, a weapon of war. And this allows for coercion, not just deterrence by their missiles. And in this current context, when Iran responded against the February 2022 strike in March 2022, it responded with ballistic missiles. So the threshold for these guys' use of these weapons is dropping their confidence in the performance of these missiles is growing. And each and every time there is a non-response to these missiles, they double down in their mind the perception that they're unstoppable and that these weapons are the pinnacle of the pinnacle for them. Let's just back up a little bit further here. We're talking about Iraq and Iran. In January 2020, as you know, there was a drone strike that killed 
Iran's chief terrorist, the commander of the Quds Force. You're, you're the reading my, my mind right here. I literally was looking up the date for that as you were talking. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. I just, uh, it always, always makes me laugh when my guests are, are right on the same wavelength. Yeah, in January 2020, it was a, a drone strike that killed Iran's uh, chief terrorist mastermind, Qasem Soleimani, Quds Force commander, uh, as he was uh, in Iraq, in, in, in Baghdad airport, as you know. Uh, the weapon Iran chose to respond to this uh, was not some low-level act of terror, was not to try to penetrate someone's airspace with drones. It was overt from its own territory ballistic missiles against bases that housed American forces in Iraq. This tells you when they fire against you publicly from their territory, it means they are not afraid of the kinetic reprisal. For this regime, which has spent four decades cultivating the proxy denial to make attribution harder, when they do it from their territory, territory is imperative, and they launch their most lethal weapon, this is not a signaling strike like some people in January 2020 made it out to be. This is a weapon of war intended to kill. And in the luck that we had, and in the skill of the commanders that we had, and in the bravery of the troops that we had that did not get killed, and we had 140-plus traumatic brain injuries, which is also no joke, by the way, because the way the Iranians were firing these missiles, if I can just bore everyone for a second, was not uh, just 16 short-range ballistic missiles, and that was it. It was a steady drip. It was fire, wait, calm, and then to break the silence again with another strike, and another strike, and another strike, and it was to maximum damage to if there's people in the area, if you leave your bunker, if you go back to a different building, it is designed to erode the spirit that the strikes will continue over time and that punishment meted out over time means more fear over time. This is how this strike was designed. And the fact that in the U.S. you know, policy slash politics world, the fact that the strikes didn't kill someone meant that there was no need for a kinetic overt U.S. response led directly to the things that Iranian generals have said, which fortunately they've said in the press and in documentaries, and I've transcribed in the report, which is that America was deterred by Iran's missile power. So when they feel they can deter the great Satan, you think they won't use these weapons against others? The threshold for this weapon is dropping. And so whether it's the war between the wars, whether it's you know ISIS attacking Iran, whether it is you know, you know more U.S. force posture changes, or whether it's some constellation of Arab allies, whatever it is that the Islamic Republic perceives to be a threat, ethnic or sectarian minority tensions, whatever it is, the Islamic Republic feels more emboldened tackling these challenges because the capability of its missiles has stiffened its deterrent spine and is actually now using those weapons. And so the fact that these things fly high and fast are difficult to intercept, and the regime is more of them, and they're using them more often, means there will be more, not less conflict in the region. I'm glad you mentioned that strike, because that's the one that always stuck out to me. It was a really a mistake by President Trump to not respond uh, to that. He really should have made an effort to call down Iran's missiles after that strike. And he didn't. He viewed it as we killed Soleimani. They launched an ineffective attack. We win. Um, major mistake. That is not how the Iranians read that. I think the Iranians read it the exact opposite, as you note. But quickly, you had mentioned that the, some of these, the more advanced missiles have a 2,000 kilometer range. Can you put that in perspective? Uh, what countries can Iran strike with missiles in these range, in these range in the region? For the audience, we actually have this at a Western missile base in, in the city of Kermanshah, which is, uh, I chose, you know, you could deploy it anywhere, you could deploy it at the tip, but uh, I, I chose that base because actually that was the, you know, province from which Iran fired the missiles against the bases in Iraq uh, in 2020. So I wanted to kind of drive home the point about how connected all of this is. But at a 2,000 kilometer maximum range fan, you can hit southern parts of Europe, you know, such as Ukraine past the Black Sea. Uh, southeastern parts of Europe, you know, basically all of NATO, Turkey, Bulgaria, and obviously Israel falls well within all of this. And basically all of U.S. military infrastructure, diplomatic uh, facilities throughout basically the Middle East region are well within the proven striking distance uh, of, uh, of this regime's ballistic missile force. 
Uh, now it has a solid propellant two-stage ballistic missile, which it has not ever used in a public military operation. That's the Sedgeel 2. It has a somewhat more problematic flight test track record. Uh, it has a potential threshold weapon between medium-range ballistic missile and intermediate-range ballistic missile, which is a North Korean weapon Iran received in 2005 and it publicly unveiled in 2016. Uh, uh, this is basically a liquid propellant system. It's also a nuclear-capable system. The Koreans call it the Musudan. Iran calls it the Horamshar. The E3, the French, the Germans, and the Brits, in 2019 complained uh, that Iran had actually modified this weapon, lightened its payload, and you know added finlets, uh, removed the grid fins, uh, but basically made this weapon in terms of mass and uh, you know payload uh, and whatnot an IRBM almost weapon, basically able to strike 3,000 kilometers. So basically consider this much broader. Extend the sub-eastern European range I gave you by 1,000 kilometers in either direction, uh, and you get the potential but untested range of this system. And lest you think this is a, as this is, you know, can be solved, the Iranians routinely say, particularly the IRGC, that the 2,000-kilometer range ban is not a technical inhibition, it's a political prohibition. Meaning, if they wanted to, they could move to, in terms of their capability, extend the range beyond that. That this is just merely them adhering to this alleged 2,000-kilometer range ban that Iran, uh, through its supreme leader, has put on some of its missiles. But lest you think that even that is, you know, a, a glue, a whole, uh, a sticky enough glue on Iran's missile ranges, the founder of Iran's missile program, and we chronicle his biography uh, in the report, he's, he's literally called the father of Iran's missile program. Uh, his name is Hassan Tehrani Muratan. Uh, he led a bunch of missile crews during the Iran-Iraq war on Scud missile training, reverse engineering, all of this stuff. Um, he literally chose to work on two things, the space program and solid propellants, starting in the mid to late 90s and throughout the 2000s just to find a way around this 2,000-kilometer range cap. And this is according to the deputy of the IRGC Aerospace Force. And this was all public in an interview he gave in 2014. Uh, and basically, even Khamenei called this guy's work on space program and on solid propellants a clear path. And one wonders what it could be a clear path to. Uh, but starting in 2020, you saw what this clear path was headed to, basically an Iranian ICBM. In 2020, the IRGC launched for the first time ever, even in a surprise launch, a solid propellant, uh, a partially solid propellant SLV, which is a satellite launch vehicle. And as we know from the past, you can move. It's not perfect, but it, you can move from a space to a, to a uh, ICBM program if reconfigured and you know have sufficient flight testing and work on you know re-entry vehicle design those still are a lot more ands for the regime but it's moved it in this direction quite quickly it's had a liquid propellant space program for quite a while that has not been that fruitful for them and now they have a very robust solid propellant program and in january 2022 they tested their largest ever solid propellant motor statically meaning they didn't launch it they just tested it it has thrust vectoring capabilities, so the missile doesn't have to move. The nozzles move on the end of the missile. You know, it's more aerodynamic, much more well-suited for these longer-range miss missions. And then ultimately, in November 2022, they used that solid propellant missile, solid propellant motor, as the first stage of an entirely new uh, SLV that they called the QAEM, the Q-A-E-M. And the funny thing about this name is that this is the last uh, program, the FAIM, that the founder of Iran's missile program, Hassan Tehrani Mogatem, was working on at the time of his death in 2011. And remember, he was working on a clear path, SLVs, space program, solid propellants. And now the regime literally names this system the exact same thing he was working on. And just so you don't forget, when the regime tested this missile, this, this space uh, launch vehicle in November 2022, they did so with a giant mock-up of his face, and they even painted the missile tail, the transporter erector launcher, in his favorite color, just so you don't forget about it. So this is really an homage to their founding. As we've been focusing on some of these shorter-range things, the regime is not forgetting about precision, about survivability, about lethality, and about the range of its most prized weapon, 
which are ballistic missiles. You uh, you mentioned precision, and that uh, leads me to my next question. For the short and medium and longer range missiles, what do we know about the precision of these missiles? So we certainly know a lot about the precision of the shorter range. And here I'm, I'm using the kind of the U.S. government definition, you know, between 300 and 1,000 kilometers. Uh, Iran actually does have an evolving close range, a CRBM program that I incorporated into the report uh, as well. Uh, not all based on just rockets that are, you know, modified, uh, but actual existing SRBMs that they have shrunk down and they've actually given to different elements of their forces. So uh, traditionally, the ballistic missiles are the purview of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Aerospace Force. But this program has been such a success, it's been diffused to other elements of Iran's security services. Uh, there are obviously anti-ship ballistic missiles that the IRGC Navy has, and now the conventional Navy has, the Artesh Navy. Uh, but of course, the IRGC ground forces has taken stock of its more precision strike, close-range ballistic missiles, for instance. And damningly, in September 2022, and then twice in November 2022, the regime again launched cross-border attacks at Iraqi Kurdistan using the ground forces of the IRGC rather than the aerospace force of the IRGC and using these precision strike close range ballistic missiles. And in the September 2022 attack, it is the first time ever that a U.S. citizen was killed by an Iranian ballistic missile. Thus far, the U.S. has not canonically responded. There was some tough talk and finger wagging from the, I think, the White House or the State Department spokesperson. Uh, but other than that, uh, there has been no response to that. And again, this feeds into the loop. The more, the better these systems, the less the foreign response, the more likely to use these systems. And again, and around and around we go. But just by way of example, we talk about the progenitor for that close-range ballistic missile, which is Iran's Fateh family of short-range ballistic missiles, which itself was a converted, allegedly, Zelzal rocket from the 1990s that Iran put fins on and uh, different, uh, you know, finlets on at the bottom as well and updated the control and guidance section over time and grew the range from 250 to 300, all the way up to, with variants like the Zulfagar, which was used in the strike, uh, uh, used in several cross-border strikes at Iraq and Syria, 2017, 2018, to eventually be able to go 700 or 750 kilometers. Uh, obviously, they modified the payload as well, and they've also experimented with composites so you could have uh, a composite propellant uh, in there as well, not just purely, uh, you know, liquid or solid. So this this is something, and also composite missiles in terms of the body of the missile weigh less. So this is really the next frontier. Is you know they got the solid propellant, they got the precision, and they're moving towards some of these lighter airframes as well. So again, it's just mastery, mastery of this whole spectrum that I like to call the unmanned aerial threat spectrum which at the lower end is mortars and then rockets and then drones and then cruise missiles and finally ballistic missiles. So again, quantity and quality and precision is just one of several vectors of quality. And just to compare from where they were to where they are, and the report has some of this data in there, the precision of a missile is, is measured, allegedly you know, me measured um, using something that they call CEP or circular error probable. It's basically, if you fire it, half the strikes have to fall uh, within this radius. Uh, then that's circular error probable. Uh, it, it was several hundred meters for Iran's liquid propellant scuds that they got from Libya and later North Korea in the 80s and 90s. The most precision strike, and if you take their word for it, the most precision strike variants of the Fatah family are about 10 meters. That's... Um... Ooh, I find that hard to believe uh, off of, but yeah, sure. 10 meters. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, really well, quickly. The thing that, is that the Iranians were able to, they missile functionality will vary rapidly over, over time. You know, uh, everything from, you know, as you better know, like the intelligence they have prior to the strike, the functionality of every missile, the training of the missile crew, the time of the launch, the weather of the launch. So in the 2018, they had, they fired two different, twice in 2018. Um, in October, I believe, of 2018, they fired at a, uh, a KDPI, a Kurdistan Democratic Party of Iran, but in Iraq uh, facility. 
they literally targeted the side of the building that the meeting was happening in. Uh, and again, maybe this was enabled by good pre-strike target selection and proper conditions, but uh, the functionality has varied drastically over time. And, and, and other missile experts have attested to the, you know, the January 2020 strikes as, as being precisely where they wanted to hit, the cafeteria, the bedrooms uh, of where some of the soldiers were. But again, it does vary drastically, and hyperbole is par for the course for these guys. No, it sounds like uh, I may be underestimating a little. I, I, that, that's a little surprising to me. And where, do, where does the listener go to download this report? FTD.org uh, has the full uh, version of this report. It's several megabytes. I apologize in advance, but things are thoroughly sourced, detailed, footnoted uh, for your review. And it's basically, uh, we had a, a very gracious forward by Vice Admiral Searing, the former Missile Defense Agency uh, had uh, talked about this uh, in, in the forward of the report, and he said it covers exactly what I think it does, which is the origin, evolution, and future. And I think we should, we should really study the origin, evolution, and future uh, of this threat, because it's not going away, uh, and unless we understand that trajectory, we're not going to know literally where the missile is going to end up. Yeah, that uh, leads to the next question. Where do these missiles end up? And what are the missile capabilities of Iran's proxies? Iran obviously is giving missiles to several of its proxies. I'll let you name them. Um, tell us just a little bit about the capabilities of these missiles that are in with Hezbollah and with the, the Houthis and other groups. Well, well, they're also evolving. And, and uh, they vary theater to theater. But Iran calls this whole proxy network the axis of resistance, as you know. Yes. And that axis of resistance is, you know, the Shia militia groups uh, in Iraq and Syria, as well as the Assad regime in Syria, the Palestinian groups like Hamas and PIJ, uh, and then, of course, the Houthis. And uh, while Iran's overall missile program, you can kind of understand and compartmentalize who matters to them where based on this alliteration of PPP, procure, produce, and proliferate, uh, in terms of the networks of its terrorist apparatus, it's CCC. It's create, co-opt, control. So there's some of these groups like Lebanese Hezbollah or the Badr Corps in Iraq, they create it. And then there's some that have kind of existed and then they co-opted their cause. And then they win them over through the proliferation of these systems to ultimately control them. And that is the Iran-Houthi relationship, for example. Yes. Like they're a different sect of Shiism, but ultimately if they're people who have an animus against your adversary, what Iran is very good at in the region is maximizing that and equipping them. And the pattern of proliferation to a group like the Houthis has evolved over time. The Houthis had Scud missiles from the, uh, the missile arsenal of Saleh, who they took over uh, from in Yemen. Uh, but ultimately, the missile programs of some of these proxies have changed over time, such that uh, Iran has stressed not just giving these guys whole systems, like it's parked, it's short-range ballistic missiles, like uh, the Zulfagar in Western Iraq, for instance. It's given the Fatah 110 to the Assad regime. In 2012, even, there was documented use of the Assad regime firing this against Syrian dissidents. I think uh, sometimes this is colloquially called the M600, uh, in the, in, in, at least in the Syrian theater. And uh, this, those same Zelzal rockets that Lebanese Hezbollah has, Iran is working to with it proliferation of not whole systems, but the, uh, yeah, the, the guidance kits and with finlets to turn into missiles so that they can be controlled uh, much more and thus basically have a chance to go towards a, a much better, uh, you know, kind of a precision strike weapon rather than just a terror weapon where you have to fire and forget it like a, like a rocket. And there is, with the Palestinian groups like Hamas and PIJ, there is no evidence yet of precision, so not missiles per se, but evolving rocket ranges. You know, stretching, uh, you know, a, a tube, getting a, a different weight warhead, making something go a certain way, configuring the motor a certain way, using local ingredients, local manufacturing, and this is the the new thing the regime is stressing for this kind of proxy partner relationship, rather than have to have every single thing come from Tehran. Uh, Using local ingredients, the regime is stressing local production, which makes it harder for you to stop this kind of changing pattern of proliferation because it could be one guy with a suitcase of blueprints, another guy with a, a suitcase of kind of guidance and control technology, and you're really off to the races. 
The Iranians also provided the Houthis with drones, correct? Uh, they were used to launch attacks in Saudi Arabia. I believe it was, what, 2019 and 2022? The local production, as you know, has gotten so good that there are now almost carbon copies of some of these Iranian missiles in uh, places like the Houthis in Yemen, for instance. They have There was a military parade in Sana'a commemorating the eighth anniversary of the Houthi takeover. There's three whole new systems there that look like Iranian precision strike systems. So that's a problem. And the second is that Iran, with this local production uh, or production for select proxies, is creating an arsenal in exile, where to know the Iranian arsenal is not just to know what they have, it's to know what their proxies have. And there was an MRBM that the Houthis had uh, that they fired once in August 2019 at the Eastern Province, and then again fired under a new name. Uh, they called it previously the Burkhan 3, and now it's called the Zulfagar. And they fired it in late January, early February 2022 at both the Abu Dhabi airport and Dafra Air Base in the UAE. This is an Iranian ballistic missile, but ultimately, this is an Iranian ballistic missile that was developed for the Houthis. And for the first time ever in September 2022, in an Iranian military parade, this missile was paraded, and they paraded it under an entirely new name called the Resbon. So sometimes Iran may actually be now creating capabilities for its proxies that are unique to its proxies' needs have its proxies tested against defenses, and when it's proven that it works, re-import it back into Iran under a new name. So we have to look at the, the two-way now pattern of proliferation, from patron to proxy and proxy to patron. And this is, this is going to be a sign of the times, uh, I, I really fear. That's an excellent point you make, Benham. You know, about the, 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 the Iranians... By providing these to the proxies and the proxies that are using them, I think Yemen is probably one of the best examples of this. They're actually getting battlefield experience with these weapons and are able to adjust, as you noted. That's a it's an excellent point. And the Iranians have also provided drones to the Houthis as well. Is that right? Am I am I right about that? The, the, the oh, yeah. drone strikes against uh, I believe in 2019 and again in 2022 against Saudi oil facilities. One of the attacks shut down. Uh, half the processing in Saudi Arabia for 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 some time. I think that was the 2019 attack, if I recall. Yeah, I believe a lot of those strikes, the the, the heavier ones on the oil refinery and storage facilities and application for race, those actually, interestingly, came from Iran. Um, the Houthis did publicly take credit for it, and it did look like it would be a Houthi attack because the Houthis do have, again, uh, that kind of poor man's cruise missiles. The Houthi drone attacks, again, in, in 2017, 18, 19, uh, at civilian population centers, but also at battlefield positions against Saudi and coalition forces. And I think famously against Aden Airport uh, in 2021, uh, basically a, cruise, a, a suicide drone that functioned as a poor man's cruise missile. But the 2019 attacks, as far as I know, were fired from the north uh, and ended up being an uh, Iranian uh, attack directly. Uh, at the heart of the Saudi oil cap uh, refining capabilities. But again, the fact that the Houthis can produce these en masse while fighting coalition, just with a little bit of Iranian support in terms of a few blueprints, a few outlines, and a few modifications to what they may have versus what may be commercially available, uh, tells you all you need to know about how these weapons of the weak will continue to confound the strong for a very, very long time. Excellent point. Ben, what is America doing to counter the Iranian patron and their proxies use of, as you noted, the spectrum of, you call them, what did you call them? Unmanned aerial threats. I like that. That's a, what is the U.S. doing to counter this? I mean, I, I really bothers me the failure to respond to the attack after the Soleimani uh, that one in Iraq or when an American civilian, I just think we're sending all the wrong messages. But is there something happening covertly or support for Israel to counter these threats? It's unclear. I mean, the covert one, we won't know. There is one thing that uh, the New York Times revealed about a covert program dating as far back to the Bush administration about trying to thwart Iran's satellite and, and potentially longer range strike capabilities through feeding kind of defunct or non-working parts into known Iranian procurement rings that were not kind of exposed or subject to sanctions yet. Uh, that was reported in the New York Times sometime in the pandemic, I forgot, 2020 or 2019. 
it was basically something that the U.S. was trying to do to slow the covert side. Through, through covert means the procurement of technologies to grow the range of some of these systems. But broadly, the U.S. has relied on a kind of, and we talk about in the report, a, a cocktail of tools, missile defense assets in the region, export controls and sanctions, and then, you know, when lucky, uh, interdictions based on the authority they have and the political will they have and the theater of conflict that we're trying to stop stuff from going to. Uh, otherwise, the day-to-day pushback, as you mentioned, is more Israelis, you know, the war between the wars, you know, trying to erode the Iranian transfers of systems and capabilities on the land bridge. But a lot of this stuff, but particularly the missile defense and even air defense assets, which is the way we like to go, we like to go high-end, we like to go high-tech. The Iranians understand this, and the stuff they produce, while not as cheap as drones, is cheaper than some of the stuff we're sending to intercept. And the Iranians always talk about winning the economic war of these races. And in particular, they talk about this for their proxies. Like in the May 2021 war, you had IRGC outlets talking about literally whether Israel intercepts or doesn't intercept these rockets, they will lose either way. You don't intercept, you know, there's the potential loss to life given the trajectory of the rocket. You intercept, you end up spending more on something than the value of the thing that the regime is sending. So the regime is very cognizant of this. And you know, that's why there's such a force multiplier for the Russians today. Uh, you know, if, if sanctions is the primary tool we're using and it's designed to crater the Russian economy to erode the overall uh, capability of the Russians to continue to fund the war machine, the Russians are using cheaper and cheaper long-range strike systems, which means if Russia has been able to stay in the game longer, it's because of Iranian weaponry that allows them to do that. And that is the Iranian secret sauce, the cost element to winning a lot of these asymmetric wars. Uh, And so I think that's something where we need to be better about, and we should play to our advantage, which is, and I don't want to sound like a hawk here, but, you know, sometimes you got to call a spade a spade, where if the purpose of the missiles is to devalue Iran's adversary's greatest tool, which is conventional military power, you should kind of go all Clausewitz on them and strike at the heart of the weakness. Uh, which is their conventional, you know, capabilities. So in this sense, uh, deterrence by denial, which we talk about in the report, is insufficient. You know, if you just put air defense or you just put missile defense, you need to do deterrence by punishment, which is to make the regime know that when it fires one missile, it risks losing more than the cost of the missile. You have to kind of to go to the theory world here. I think it's shelling. You have to threaten that which they hold dear uh, to be able to say, I will respond to you in a way that is wider than that which you are firing at me. And until we do that, the, the risk tolerance of the regime will continue to grow, and our risk aversion will continue to handicap us from responding. We can have the perfect sanctions architecture, the perfect export control architecture, but if you haven't impacted the way the adversary sees you, you haven't really won, quote-unquote, the long war. Yeah, listen, I think uh, Iran's response to the soft power, the sanctions and, and whatnot... I, or I think their perception of it, I think they perceive it as weak. Look, I could not agree with you more what you said. I remember when Iran captured uh, American sailors, I believe it was in the... 2016. Uh, right? And what was our response to that? My response as president, and yeah, listen, I get it. I'm a knuckle-dragging, red-blooded, you know, ape. What can I tell you? I would have sank the entire Iranian Navy. That's what I would have done. I would have said, you want to kidnap our soldiers, capture our soldiers and put them on television? You don't have a Navy anymore. I would make the cost. It's exactly that, right? Make the cost of their actions so excessive that they'd seriously have to consider. And this is why the lack of response on the strike, the ballistic missile strike against the U.S. soldiers inside of Iraq was, you know, we're sending all of the wrong messages to the Iranians. Yeah, you're, 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 again, I'm not the. I'm not asking to rush to be a proponent of force here. I think. I think what we're advocating for or are analyzing the situation is we're saying that the Iranian side is actually highly means ends rational. They are stringing together a series yes. of where they operate below a certain known threshold and get away with it time and again, and that has emboldened them to cross previously known thresholds, and still they're getting away with it, and so that changes their risk tolerance. You can create a straight line from 83 Beirut bombing to Kobar Towers to all the stuff in Iraq, uh, you know, with the EFPs and IEDs and the 600 plus casualties, 
and all the stuff in Afghanistan, obviously, and then correlate that with some of the missile stuff that's been going on much more recently, and you'll see that the lines basically overlap. And it is not illogical uh, for them to do this. Again, like you know, I, I respect you know LWJ as an institution because you're always shedding light, you're always listening to what the adversary says, translating what what they say. They're putting it out there in bright lights and not mocking it, but but taking them at their word. We didn't take Putin at his word. We didn't take a lot of other people at their word. And this doesn't mean all this kind of cartoonish stuff about, you know, the, the grandiose stuff. They say, well, okay, well, we can't listen to their hyperbole, but we're supposed to listen to this. No, it means to understand that when the adversary has an impression of us, how did they get that impression? And to walk through not our words, but our deeds. And on the pushback on Iran file, you know, there is declassified, there are declassified CIA memorandums on this kind of stuff from the 80s that say the lack of a response to Iran back international terrorism is likely to be, you know, and this is stuff from the 80s. Yeah. To borrow from you guys, grow the trend lines and connect the dots. Yeah, it's, it's we think that our adversaries act as we would act. Well, if we de-escalate, that shows goodwill. They view that as weakness. And I, to me, it's that simple. We just, we're not speaking the same language. We're not sharing the same thoughts. The final question, you had brought this up that, um, so Iran is providing Russia with drones. Israel has a very complex relationship with Russia. With the Israeli strike that targets Iranian drone infrastructure here. Is this a, is there a concern within Israel that this this deconfliction that exists, particularly in Syria, that this can all go away if Israel continues to target critical infrastructure that Iranian infrastructure that is quickly becoming critical Russian infrastructure? You know, you raise a a, a multi million dollar question in, in in this sense. Well, a I should say. I, I'm not an Israel domestic politics uh, expert in the slightest, but I think Israeli security planners can and will have to think about exactly what you said, in the sense that in as much as nowadays in real time, Iranian long-range strike capabilities and unmanned aerial threats are being used in the service of Russia to continue its war against the Ukraine, whose one-year anniversary we're basically upon. And that Iran is midwifing Russian staying power by providing cheaper systems. In as much as Israel is now shifting its war between the wars and trying to strike at those systems, uh, or at least whether through the provision of potentially Iron Dome uh, in the future uh, to Ukraine, devalue, intercept, and offset those low and slow aerial threats on the battlefield, or uh, get them at the left of launch, you know, style before they're even fired or before they're even transferred uh, inside of Iran, going after drone depots, drone storage facilities, drone production centers, and military research centers that support the overall drone and missile programs. In as much as Russia may see that as its infrastructure, uh, you know, not to, to be crass about it, uh, it will create problems for the, the Israeli-Russian uh, relationship in as much as we know that the Russians have turned a blind eye to a lot of these strikes. In many ways, we know that the word is indeed the word that you said, which is deconfliction. Uh, and this was a, a large gripe and remains a large gripe between the Iranians and the Russians about the permissive attitude and the lack of Russian air cover for Iran-backed assets, Iran-backed Shia militias, uh, and uh, Iranian infrastructure that hasn't built up over time across Syria, regardless of geography. Uh, so this this has been a point of contention. And so one wonders beyond the reports of Russia potentially providing Iran with Western weaponry it finds on the battlefield and beyond reports in the Iranian press that the Iranians will receive by the end of the Persian calendar year, which ends this mid-March, uh, Su-35s, and that the Russians have already been training Iranians on Su-35s in Russia. What else would the Iranians ask for? Maybe the Iranians might ask the Russians to move some of their air defense assets in Syria and, in essence, uh, force uh, Russia into a different overall position with the Israelis and, and have the Russians come down a touch more on their side in the war between the wars. I mean, the the real answer is who knows, but it is a possibility. Therefore, it should be th th thought through. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that because it, it certainly is a possibility. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I certainly would imagine the Iranians at some point are going to ask the Russians to 
change how they're deploying their air defenses and ask for some more protection inside of Syria for the, for their forces. And, and, and it's going to be difficult for the Russians to say no, in my opinion. But we'll see how this all develops. Benham, thank you for joining us today, for walking us uh, through some very interesting and extremely complex top- topics. Your knowledge on the Iranian um, weapons systems is just... Uh, you look, if I need to, if I have a question, you're the guy I turn to. It's fantastic. And I appreciate you sharing that with the audience of Generation Jihad. Thank you so much. It's been a real privilege and a real pleasure. And uh, hope to talk to you guys again soon. Yes, let's get back on soon. And thanks again, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.